Welcome to this Innovation Forum podcast with me, Ian Welsh. Delighted that joining me today are Juliet Ermer and Sarah Laidler from the Carbon Trust. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Hi. We're going to be talking a bit about Carbon Trust's work on packaging impact. Juliet, why don't you start us off? What is the impact of the packaging industry in general that you're seeing? I mean, yeah, so impact, it's a very broad term and it can be broken down to so many different types of impact. And the impacts also vary by packaging material. There's, of course, a massive waste impact. So 80 million tonnes of packaging was generated in 2019 in Europe. And this is just increasing and increasing. So it was a 2.8% increase from the previous year. And the largest part of this is actually paper and cards. So around 40% of the waste we're producing in Europe, with the second biggest being plastic, um, around 20%. It's interesting to see the actual percentages based on what you see and then also the carbon impacts that come out of it. But there's also other impacts to consider, such as the significant water use in material extraction and processing. We specialise in carbon impacts, the Carbon Trust, of course, and these vary greatly by materials. So generally, the most important parameters that alter carbon impacts are recycled content, recycling rates, and then also grid carbon intensity. When we've done studies, we've found that aluminium and glass, they have the highest potential emissions with large virgin material emissions. But then they also have these large ranges with big decreases when they use high recycle content, high recycling rates and low grid carbon intensity. Whereas something like plastic has a much smaller range of emissions, but we do see a larger room for improvement just because the recycling infrastructure and the market is less established. So recycle content and recycling rates are currently low. Um, And we often get asked about packaging, what's the best? So in terms of carbon, the lowest would be aluminium and plastic. They can be fairly comparable in terms of carbon impacts when they're both at the lower ends of their ranges. The other point that's interesting is that plastic can also have a lower carbon impact than paper and card when certain parameters are at play. So a plastic bag could technically have lower carbon emissions than paper bags due to some things like reusability and the large paper emissions at the end of life when disposed of in landfill from the the methane that we see from anaerobic conditions. Certainly it's true that it's easy to forget that plastic is in fact a low carbon material. Are there any other impacts that you see as significant, Sarah? Within plastic, for sure, what's really interesting to highlight as well is that when we encourage, from our point of view as the carbon trust, we encourage a lot of life cycle assessments, particularly in terms of what Juliette just mentioned, in terms of the report that we did within that soft drink packaging. A lot of the underlying drivers behind carbon footprints can be within their upstream and particularly for plastic 90% roughly of the upstream impact makes up the majority of the footprint so that's when it becomes really important for things such as recycled content to be incentivized because that can bring that down significantly. What's also important to highlight as well is when you consider the footprint of plastic packaging a key space that a lot of researchers are now going into is that the full impact of plastic packaging isn't really recognized because We know that plastic has become, I guess, the poster child of our overconsumption and our effect on the planet, um, as we see in sort of seas and and our natural systems. Within a carbon point of view, that element of plastic sitting in our natural environment isn't captured because that's what keeps it quite low. Plastic doesn't break down and re-release the carbon that's embodied within it. 
So the actual impact that that might have on wider ecosystems in terms of the ocean, how it disrupts food chains, how it disrupts crop rotations, etc., because it's in everything, that element that sits behind that isn't captured in terms of a life cycle assessment at the minute. And that grey area or the black box behind plastic packaging is unknown. Yes, it's another thing that is not often recognised. It's often more complicated than it may at first appear. Juliet, to what extent then is the oil and gas sector still incentivized to encourage the use of virgin plastic made from petrochemicals? Yeah, so it's definitely still greatly incentivized in a few different ways. So, I mean, firstly, with global grid decarbonisation, when we get a higher proportion of renewables in the grid, oil and gas demand for energy, it's going to decrease. They're going to be encouraging the use of petrochemicals like virgin plastic. And these are going to be essential in holding the sector up. So they're going to be holding on to them for dear life. And fossil fuel subsidies, they're another huge incentive for virgin plastic production. And it links with this because... Currently, governments, they're assuming the sector's costs by allowing them to pay less taxes and fees and creating special rules that reduce the true cost of the oil and gas development um, and energy production. And then this, in turn, it's incentivizing the supply of virgin plastic feedstocks and it keeps them relatively cheap for purchasing. And this is just a massive problem because recycled plastic is struggling to compete with the cost when these subsidies are hiding the actual cost of virgin plastic. We've seen an increase in price in recycled plastic recently with some grades doubling in price in the last year. And this is just because demand is increasing, but the supply is still low. This could mean in some instances that even with taxes, so we had the UK plastic packaging tax come in on packaging with less than 30% recycled content. This virgin packaging, even with the tax, could still be cheaper than recycled plastic, just from the way that recycled content is so expensive at the moment. The cost of virgin plastic it needs to be increased. We don't necessarily need to decrease the cost of recycled content. We want it to have a value and we want there to be a good market for it. But we need the cost of virgin plastic to increase so that they can compete fairly. OK, thank you. Sita, did you want to jump in? Yeah, I think it's really important on that last point that Juliet mentioned is the economic value behind recycled content. The overall market and within the packaging sector, specifically the plastic packaging sector, needs to recognise the economic value that's behind circularity and how that can leverage a lot of the carbon reductions as well. Quite frankly, the investment that's still within virgin plastics is alarming. If we're looking at all the pledges that many organisations have taken and also the legislation that's coming into play across the world for plastic packaging taxes, for instance, on recycled content, that doesn't match with the $330 billion that's currently still invested in virgin plastic production. In that business-as-usual scenario, the greenhouse gas emissions from the plastic sector is expected to account for about 15% of the global carbon budget by 2050. And the forecasts from BP and IEA show that the petrochemical industry is expected to make up 95 and 45% of the growth into 2040, respectively. Breaking that down into sort of a, a simplified term, we know that, that there's still investment and still drivers within the virgin plastic market. And by no means is that going to go away overnight. It's definitely going to be a combination of recycled content and virgin plastic. And there will be some applications that can't use recycled content. 
In addition to that, we also haven't provided a sophisticated enough system that we do with aluminium when aluminium can go around the cycle many, many times and not lose any value. That's not the same for plastic. So there will have to be presence of virgin plastic. But I think what's the problem that we need to face at the minute is the fact that this virgin plastic investment that's still there is not matching to these claims and we need to see more investment and more economic value placed upon recycled content and decarbonisation. The whole way that things are valued is obviously going to have to evolve. Let's think about um, decarbonisation then. What does a route to decarbonisation for the packaging sector look like, Juliet? So policy is going to be incredibly important going forward, especially because there's so much pressure on consumers to do the right thing and it shouldn't be the consumer's choice ultimately and consumers should not be demonised for choosing conventional plastic packaging options when they are cheaper and easier and it's just not acceptable to guilt consumers into thinking that they have to go to more expensive zero waste shops or go straight to the farm and buy their cheese and wrap it in beeswax paper just to be a good person it's just not realistic so we need policy to be implemented to remove that choice just so that sustainable packaging is the norm and in terms of what this policy would look like the OECD they published a good report which highlighted a policy roadmap for circular plastics so we keep talking about plastic and of course we need to see decarbonization in all materials but plastic it just has the greatest need for improvement This report talks through three different levels of policy, starting with closing leakage pathways, like investing in collection and disposal infrastructure, and then moving to more conventional policies, creating incentives for recycling and sorting at source, so like deposit refund schemes, and then moving to the advanced level of policy, which is where we need to end up, which is all about restraining demand and designing for circularity. So this would include things like banning or taxing single-use plastics, removing fossil fuel subsidies, as I said, and imposing recycled content standards. But I think it's important to mention that it's not just policy, but we also need to make sure that brands are held responsible for what they put out into the world. And Break Free from Plastic, they put together a really interesting brand order every year. And this exposes the top plastic polluting brands around the world from people going around and plastic picking We just need these brands to take responsibility from what's clearly going wrong in their system and do this proper analysis into what plastics are leaking, where, and then work to amend this through whatever means they deem necessary, whether it's product redesign, improved communication, deposit schemes, and investing with and working with recycling authorities. It's not just impacting wildlife, but there's a significant amount of plastic which is just sitting on the floor and it could be turned into recycled content, which is being missed. This in general is all just incentivizing virgin plastic production, which is what we're trying to avoid. Let's pull this back to decarbonisation. Sarah, what are the other viable drivers of decarbonisation for packaging? The changes will have to move beyond incremental steps. There will have to be giant changes within the industry in order for us to meet the decarbonisation that's required across the sector. Particularly when we think about sort of these long-term net zero targets that are in line with 1.5 degree worlds and 1.5 degree trajectories, we're looking at 95% reductions in scope one and twos and 90% reductions respectfully in, in scope three. When companies are looking at their entire emissions, these won't be achieved by small incremental changes. I think what would be really interesting to see in terms of how to sort of overall close that gap is within sort of a systems change scenario, 
we'd have to look at retrofitting existing fossil fuel based plastics in the manufacturing system with technologies. We'd have to think about how we move away from carbon intensive fuels within the production. So for instance, the fossil fuels that are used within sort of steam cracking and the upstream part of plastic manufacture, that may have to be replaced by things such as green hydrogen. We may have to look at it in terms of other particular fuels that could be used there or perhaps electrification of steam crackers. We also might have to look in terms of how plastic manufacturing and incineration with energy recovery can also be decentralized. Because in that element, particularly around waste to energy, there's quite an energy intensive operation. And also these are capex efficient methods of reducing um, greenhouse gas emissions as well. We have to also think about in terms of what else can be done in terms of the upstream mitigation to help do this. For instance, if we start thinking about how renewable energy can be used within the upstream elements of plastic packaging and scale up of green hydrogen production, and also look at terms of the type of feedstock that we're trying to create as well, whether that can be mitigated with more recycled content, or we could maybe have to look in terms of alternative feedstocks from biological sources or from CO2 capture. There's lots and lots of space within innovation of how this can be changed, such as how CO2 capture can be used to actually create plastic. Seeing how that can be expanded and how that innovation can be built upon, I think will leverage some serious reductions that will help toward decarbonized future. Obviously, a large part of the decarbonisation process for packaging is going to be the significant uptake in recycling. So, Sarah, what are the right sort of incentives to drive progress on recycling? Definitely in terms of deriving the right incentives to gain progress within recycling is to make sure that it's the only option. By that, I mean is pursuing the fact that circularity should be embedded within design, um, so it's ready for recycling, but also in the fact that when plastic reaches its end of life or packaging reaches its end of life, recycling is there to support it in terms of the infrastructure that's available, but also what options there are. Behind that, it would mean decentivizing waste to energy recovery plantations as an option. Whilst that is very good for hard to recycle plastics at the minute and does dispose of them and create some good use out of it because we're getting energy recovery, what it does within the market is allow that as a significant option for plastics that are contaminated, plastics that are unsorted, or where there's just no infrastructure to help support that. You basically lose all the resource that you have, and that's led us to the linear system that we're in now. About 95% of the plastic that's in the world today is going unutilized, and it's not going around more than once. So the infrastructure there is not there to support it. It's also important to address that not all plastics will be able to be fully recycled on a mechanical basis. So when plastics are repelleted to go bottle to bottle, that might not be a valid option for every single plastic that exists. And there will be some hard recycled plastics that continue to exist. It will be fascinating to see how chemical recycling will have a role in the future. But I say that with caution. And I the reason I say that with caution is because Chemical recycling, whilst it is a valid solution for some plastics that we can't repelletize or can't do a bottle-to-bottle scheme, it can create a space in which plastics are incentivized to be chemically recycled and used as fuel, and they're not designed for mechanical recycling. So we can't have that simple system of mechanical recycling that can be very valuable in an economy. Chemical recycling won't work without the investment in common ground within government and businesses. And the investment in technology should be done with in mind that we can't develop a fuel dependent system. There must be measures in place um, to ensure it's part of a solution and not part of an ever growing problem. And I think government will have a big role to play in that as well. 
important to look at this in a very world view as well, because whilst we can comfortably say so far from a UK and a Europe point of view, how this infrastructure can be disbanded and what solutions might be in place, on a world view, this is a bit more bleak. These technologies are not widespread. We see a lot of differences between key continents, and we know that we see differences between even regions within the UK. It's important for governments to also recognise that these solutions, such as chemical recycling, moving away from waste to energy, whilst they have to move all together towards the right direction, it is possible that there will be different solutions aggregated across the world in a very different space. And key conversations such as the treaty that will be coming in 2024 should put the fundamental ground rules in place for that. And what's that treaty you mentioned? That would be the UN Plastic Treaty, which will be coming out in 2024. They've already agreed common objectives, what will be looked into in terms of plastic reduction and plastic pollution. But the space in which how that's developing going forward is still to be finalised. I'd imagine that consistency is a significant challenge, both in terms of design, but also in terms of how different municipal bodies recycle. Let's think about that first. Juliet, what are the typical challenges surrounding inconsistencies in recycling process? So Sarah's already alluded to that we need to be designing for recycling, and that is one of the biggest challenges we're facing, which is it's interesting that the problems at the end of the packaging's life are starting while it's being made. This is especially a problem for plastic with this lack of standardization of design principles. It means that all kinds of plastic packaging are turning up to recycling facilities with varying material combinations, additives, colorant, adhesives, etc. This is less of a problem for other materials, so like metal or glass. There is less that you can do to it to make it incompatible to recycling. One of the problems is also that consumers, they might even think they're doing their best recycling their waste, but they don't realise that the product just isn't made well enough. And this might even be because the packaging says it's recyclable, but the definition of recycling in itself is inconsistent. So one organisation may say that it's recyclable just because it can be turned into something. You might have a plastic bottle that was colour grey that would only be able to be turned into something like a bin bag. That would potentially have a label on it that says recycle me. But another organisation would say that this is actually downcycling. We can only technically call it recycling when that plastic has the opportunity to be turned into something with a similar function due to the good quality of the recycler you produce. So a clear plastic bottle could be turned into another clear plastic bottle if it was made well enough. So we just need this consistency in packaging design to allow for consistent recycling of all plastic in general. But yeah, there's also issues, of course, with other materials such as broken glass and paper and board contamination. But yeah, I think plastic has the biggest challenges to face so far. How far can the use of recycled content decarbonise a product, Juliet? A lot, but this changes by material type. We mentioned before that there's huge savings to be seen from virgin to recycled material in aluminium and glass. So this could potentially be something like 40 to 70% from different metals and around 40% from glass when you're comparing virgin material to recycled material. But with this recycled content, it's fairly common because there's a good market for it and it's relatively low in price compared to virgin. Whereas when you're talking about recycled content in plastics, 
there's actually less room for decarbonisation technically, so about a 25% decrease from virgin to recycled material, but recycled content is less common. So there is more room for us commonly to reduce the emissions here. Emissions reductions for paper and board are even smaller, but they're still significant, around 10 to 20%. The recycling, it of course, uses emissions, but it's not as much as is saved from the absence of virgin material used. It makes for an interesting calculation that we do in our jobs when we're carbon footprinting products, that you have to consider the circularity of the product the net savings that you get from using recycled content, when you add that together with the emissions from recycling, you have to split that at the start and the end of the packaging's life, varying by material type, depending on the market. So even different materials, they might see decarbonisation at different parts of their own life cycle stages when you look at it on the product scale. Let's think about legislation. We've talked a bit already about some of the roles that a regulation and legislation can play. So, Sarah, we've mentioned already that UK's plastic packaging tax, how can that and similar bits of regulation, how, how can they help? They can help because they act as a push factor within the market. They're effectively telling organisations and telling brands, if you decide to sell or import or make plastic packaging within the UK, you have to fulfill these rules and this is what you have to do to in order to comply, otherwise you will be taxed. So that plastic packaging tax has been deployed about £200 per tonne of plastic packaging sold in the UK. For organisations who are dominating the market, that becomes really expensive if you're not taking action when it comes to embedding recycled content or looking at your design. It also drives the need to further improve the infrastructure and incentivise recycling as a system, like I mentioned before. The current market of that is 95% of the value is lost after the first use of plastic due to that low recycling rate and that predominantly linear system. Having that as a legislation, you're driving the brands to ask for more recycled content. Therefore, you're driving the market to step up and improve the overall infrastructure. That being said, a lot of the infrastructure is also funded by the government as well. When it comes down to it, that's also a push factor on themselves to further improve the system. Over two-thirds of the emissions in the sector from packaging could be reduced by circularity. But that being said, it comes back to that sort of design flaw as well. That's what I mean in terms of that overall system of legislation can act as a push on brands indirectly. I think it's also important to highlight as well that this tax alone isn't doing enough. It needs to be further supported by schemes that also can come in within legislation. So, for instance, extended producer responsibility and how that will change the outlook going forward is really important. And it's always been a in recent events in terms of conferences and plastic speaking spaces. That's been a very hot topic of how that can be evolved to step up to the mark because... That plastic packaging tax, while it's a very good push factor to develop a market for recycled content, it's going to take more because you need to develop a system that will meet the demand for that. And looking at extended producer responsibility and how that can change is going to be very fascinating moving forward because, for instance, within extended producer responsibility, they have the potential to perhaps let brands know in terms of who has access to what feedstocks, for instance, or how packaging should be designed, how packaging should facilitate a certain criteria or fulfill a certain criteria, for instance. And there's also tools to help combat that as well. So we've seen the likes of Recyclass and Recoup, which is their UK body, for instance, how that can also provide a checklist for what needs to be in place in order that to be effectively recycled within the infrastructure that currently exists. 
Looking forwards then, what are the signposts that you're looking for that will indicate progress towards decarbonising packaging? Juliet. So yeah, on the company level, we need to see brands integrating high levels of recycled content and designing for effective recyclability, as we've been saying, with the biggest polluters investing in recycling and reuse infrastructure and taking responsibility for their pollution. And then as well, going further to achieve maybe carbon neutrality and set net zero targets. And then on the global level, we already alluded to the UN Plastic Pollution Treaty. So that's been a really good recent signpost of progress. They're looking to forge an international legally binding agreement by the end of 2024 to resolve plastic pollution. This is great because it looks to assess the entire life cycle of plastics to fix the causes and effects of plastic pollution. I think this is a great signpost and we look forward to seeing this come to fruition especially with wealthier countries playing their part to fix the global problem that they've been a massive part in creating. Thank you. And so, Sarah, just in closing then, do you think that where we're getting now is really into the nitty gritty where we, you know, we've all agreed that there's a problem with plastic pollution and that we need to decarbonise? What we're working on now are the solutions. Sure. I think originally the debate that we were facing in 2017 when we first started getting a bit more involved in this space was should we reduce plastic or should we recycle our way out of the problem? And the conversation that we're having now is very much moved to these are the solutions that we have. Who's in charge of deploying them? Is it governments or is it businesses? And who's responsible to take on more of the burden to fix the issue? We've already mentioned the treaty and the UN treaty that'll be coming in in 2024. There's been very good examples of treaties in the past, such as, well, for instance, the whaling one. When that was there, we all stopped whaling after that, and it was very effective. But there are other examples of treaties not fixing everything and not fixing the entire problem. We also have very good examples that have been perhaps not on a treaty basis, but the Paris Agreement showed us that we took that very seriously and science-based targets and net zero targets were born out of seven years ago. And we're taking a lot more action than we were previously. So my hope in terms of moving forward for decarbonisation will start with the UN Treaty in terms of establishing some ground rules. But I think what I'd like to sort of end on is one of a quote I heard from a previous event recently is plastic packaging won't cause the world to end, but carbon emissions will. And I think that's a really interesting sentence to unpick because behind plastic packaging, you do have a lot of carbon emissions to unpick and to decarbonise. In terms of moving way forward, we now understand where those hotspots lie. We know that there are valid solutions in terms of decarbonising the upstream impact. We know that there's valid decarbonisation routes for where the converters can come into play with plastic packaging. And also the consumer is now very aware of the problem and they're not going to ignore this going forward in terms of how we move forward for this decarbonisation is very prominent. I'm hopeful that brands and governments are taking this very seriously. It certainly feels like, like they're taking it a lot more seriously than they were, for sure. And as you say, it's interesting to see how the UN Treaty in 2024, how that is received and its impact. Perhaps we can come back and have a conversation about, about it all then, if not before. But for now, many thanks to Juliet Ermer, who's the Associate at the Carbon Trust, and Sarah Radler, who's a Senior Consultant. My thanks to you both. Mm-hmm.